public spaces, just not for you specifically. You know who you are. This week, council is debating and maybe even passing or rejecting the new public spaces bylaw. We'll break down what's being debated and why it's probably not such a great idea. Hi, I'm Troy. Hi, Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 251. I noticed from our listener stats that you didn't share it with exactly 2,000 people on the last episode. So disappointing, a dear listener, but we'll still give you another episode. I'm disappointed. I'm not mad. So we'll give you another episode. (laughs) We're tantalizingly close to 200,000. Of course, we are recording on Wednesday. It's a very romantic talk about the public spaces bylaw, but we can't talk about it quite yet because we first have to talk about Strathcona County. This episode is brought to you by Strathcona County. Uh, To increase investment in the region, Strathcona County and the Economic Development Team have released a new investment attraction website, helping site selectors, developers, investors, and businesses looking to expand. It makes it easier to get the right information to make the next best investment decision. Strathcona County and the Urban Center of Sherwood Park have future-ready infrastructure, a world-class workforce, and exceptional quality of life, and are proud partners of Alberta's Industrial Heartland Association and Edmonton Global. You can learn all about it at selectstrathcona.com. So, Mac, this week, the big news, of course, is the public spaces bylaw. This is one of those things, it occasionally happens where it comes up under the radar. There's not a lot of talk about it. And then suddenly administration kind of just drops something on our plate and said, here, we're done. What do you think? And in this case, not great is what a lot of people seem to be thinking. Yeah, this is an initiative that started several years ago in the middle of the pandemic. And the whole idea here is that we have you know, several bylaws on the books already that deal with public spaces. So there's the Parkland bylaw, there's the Conduct of Transit Passengers bylaw, which was recently amended and updated, and then there's the Public Places bylaw. The point of this new Public Spaces bylaw is to consolidate those three. And of course, whenever something like that happens, council direction is take a look at what we've got, figure out where there's overlap, bring us back one bylaw. Administration has done that, but they've also said, well, those other bylaws weren't updated in quite a a long time, so we're going to take a look at this and update them as we build this new bylaw a little bit more cohesively. And so it's led to some maybe we could charitably say bizarre additions to this new bylaw. It's not just taking what we had before and moving it all into a single document. It's doing that plus introducing new fines and, uh, you know, trying to bring in some new rules about things that didn't exist in those previous bylaws. There's an axiom in software development, Mac. It's make your change easy, then make the easy change. And it's about separating feature development from refactoring. So in this case, the public spaces bylaw, you know, it could have been we have three separate bylaws. Let's merge these into one. Make your changes easy. Now you only have one bylaw to update. They could have passed that independently and, you know, decommissioned those other three bylaws got one bylaw, great. Job done. And then moved on to the next job of, okay, well, let's improve this public spaces bylaw. Uh, But instead, what they've done is they've, quote unquote, improved this new bylaw that they're drafting to the point where I am almost certain council will not approve it. So none of their work has been meaningful thus far. Nothing will have been accomplished at the end of it. And Mac, I'm saying this you know, maybe preemptively as we're recording, they're still debating. In the first of many interjections, they're done debating, and I was right. But once you read the bylaw, there's a lot of changes. And what are some of those changes that we're seeing in this bylaw? 
Well, there's increased fines for things that we already had fines on the books for, but for example, riding your bicycle on the sidewalk carries a larger fine now than it did before. The same fine indeed as driving your car on the sidewalk, $250. And we know, of course, that only one of those things is likely to lead to actual harm or injury, and it's not the bicycles. So that's a bit of a bizarre one. It doesn't seem... Like, what kind of research would they possibly have drawn upon or what sort of jurisdictional scan would they have looked at that said, you know what the problem is here? We need to increase the fine for riding your bicycle on the sidewalk. So there's things like that. There's also things like we are now really concerned about, or at least administration is, about making sure that if you're floating down the river, Troy, that you are wearing a life jacket. Even though the city's own public engagement on this, the vast majority of people, 79 or 80 percent of people, say it's not an issue they care about or think that we need to do anything about. And yet the new public spaces bylaw includes this as a potential change. Uh, There's also riding your bicycle, not just on the sidewalk, but grass. Um, If you ride your bicycle on grass through a park, there's a $250 fine waiting for you. Uh, If you gather with more than 50 people without a permit, bike to the symphony illegal. There'd be fines for all the grass riding and fines for gathering. All of these are ostensibly good-natured changes. They've identified, hey, life jackets improve safety. We're going to require them. Hey, when people gather without permits, it can cause delays in transportation infrastructure. It can cause uh, violent events. So we don't want that to happen. All things that, you know, there are charitable explanations for, but it makes you wonder, Mac, Did they show this to anyone? Did they show this to legal? Did they show this to any of the departments? Did they show this to executive leadership team? How did no one flag these things? I think it's just that everyone's really excited about, you know, having some rule on the books that prevents the amplified religious folks from standing on the corner and spouting off for hours on end. Like, there are some things in the bylaw that seem you know, we've, we've we've got some common ground. People are opposed to allowing those things to happen in our public spaces. But I think you're right. And it gets back to something that our managing editor, uh, Tim Karengesser, has been talking about all week. He's had the opportunity to, to talk about with some of the other media, which is that it really seems like nobody stopped to think, if we're talking about public space, what does that mean? If it's space for the public, what kinds of things should be allowed and not allowed? And in general, if it's public space, Don't we want fewer rules and fewer regulations? Don't we want all residents of the city, people who call this place home, to be able to use those public spaces? It's a little bit like the city hall conversation that we've been talking about recently, right? There's a need, obviously, to balance safety and security, but I don't think we were hearing from anyone that they wanted to completely lock down City Hall and keep it close to the public. And it feels like a similar kind of thing happening on on all of these other public spaces now, parks and libraries and transit centers and squares and things like that. You're not allowed to loiter in a public space? Isn't that what public spaces are for? I mean, we think about vibrancy downtown, we think about Churchill Square, particularly in the summer, of course, as you would guess, and people just hanging out in the square is part of what makes it feel vibrant, despite the fact that it's a really unfriendly concrete pad, right? And a lot of the things in this bylaw seem to be antithetical to that idea that spaces are for the public. Reminds me a lot of when I read articles about homeowners associations, right? The idea that having painted fences, the idea that you don't have garbage piling up on the lawn, these are all like good aspirations, right? They come from a place of improving the community. But what you end up with is sterility 
and a hostile takeover by someone who's using the law as written to enfranchise an agenda that they particularly have against their neighbors. And that is the only possible outcome I see with public spaces bylaw. Uh, we have a couple guests to talk about it this week. One final thing I'll add before we speak with them about this. This feels a lot like back when Harper's conservatives were in power. A lot of legislation was passed by omnibus. It was not just one bill being passed. It was a whole cohesive suite of laws and legislation. So if you had a problem with one particular aspect, you couldn't really vote against it because you needed to pass the budget. You need to pass all these other good changes. And I feel this public spaces bylaw is a lot like that, where, you know, it prohibits open drug use in the city of Edmonton, which I don't think anyone is particularly opposed to. Maybe the level at which we fine that infraction. But, you know, I think everyone can reasonably get behind that is not a good use of our public space. But it also uses that to say, you're no longer allowed to swim in the river in a hot summer's day, right? And I'm sorry, I'm going to dive into the life jacket thing. But if you read the bylaw, it doesn't explicitly prohibit swimming. But what it does is it says, if you're connected to a vessel, you must have a life jacket fully secured. So if you want to go for a swim, you have to jump off your paddleboard. Careful, don't touch it. It's lava. Take off your life jacket and try and throw it back on your paddleboard. If you miss, it's gone. You can't get back. It's got to float down to Moose Jaw. You can't get back on that paddleboard without a life jacket. That's illegal. This is something that just no one who's actually used the river has thought about. For a city that keeps selling the asset of our river valley, the asset of our water, Epcor selling how clean and how great a recreation space this is, I just can't fathom that this is the best we can do. And I'm sorry that I'm focusing so hard on life jackets. We've got more important fish to fry. <laughs> well, even on life jackets on, on flotation, I think it's a really good uh, illustration of the biggest problem with this bylaw, which is that if you're on the riverboat, you're exempt. You don't have to follow <laughs> the same rules as anyone else. If you can afford to have dinner on that boat, then the rules don't apply to you. And I think that's really what is going to happen with this public spaces bylaw. You're right. Everybody agrees we don't want to have open drug use you know, in public spaces. But what's going to happen is that if we have that rule on the books, it will be selectively used to target people who are most vulnerable. If you're doing open drugs, Troy, on the street, it's very unlikely that a peace officer is going to come and say anything to you or that someone's going to complain to you because that's really how enforcement happens. If you're floating down the river without a life jacket, no one is going to enforce that. But if you're an indigenous person hanging around a public space, there's now a tool for folks who maybe lack the understanding or the empathy or, or whatever it is to now selectively you know, remove that person or, or enforce these uh, bylaws against those folks. And I think that's where this public spaces bylaw primarily falls down. But you don't have to just hear us talk about it. We've got two really solid guests that have come to really dive into some of the problems with the implementation of this bylaw. Omar Yakub, who's the Servant of Servants at, with the Islamic Family and Social Services Association, and Cheryl Whiskeyjack, who's the Executive Director of the Bent Arrow Traditional Healing Society. Omar and Cheryl are also co-historian laureates for the city of Edmonton for a little while longer, they tell us. Uh, <laughs> welcome to you both. Thanks to, uh, for joining us on Speaking Municipally. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. So as we're recording this, uh, it's Wednesday, and uh, our listeners will hear this on Friday, so we'll hopefully have an update on what council has decided to do. But What they've decided to do after a very long debate is send the bylaw back to administration for more work. And you'll see through the rest of this episode exactly what that work is. There's there's quite a lot of it. Right now, they're hearing from speakers about the public spaces bylaw. And so we've heard a wide range of things 
you know, related to this bylaw, everything from increasing tickets for biking on the sidewalks to increasing fines for people doing open drug use, wearing life jackets on the, you know, on the, on the river. Like it seems to cover a, a lot of ground. Omar, let's start with you. Maybe what's your take on this, uh, uh, on this bylaw? What is the main thing that people should be thinking about as councils considering this new public spaces bylaw? Yeah, great question. So I think there's actually a few things. You know, I think the first is, you know, we know it's unlikely to work. Why would you put something forth that you don't think is going to work? What might be some of the underlying logic? Uh, this is an omnibus bill, as far as I understand. So most of it isn't actually new. And so it's really just bringing the light stuff that's been around for a really, really long time. And sometimes when we see it all together, it just helps us realize, hey, like we have a bunch of stuff that isn't working. I think sometimes it also exposes a paucity of imagination. You know, if we think as a city that our only ability is through bylaws uh, and ticketing, then of course that's what we'll use. But I think as a city, we can be more imaginative about what we can do. So I think what you're getting at is that, you know, fining people $500 for doing drugs on the street isn't going to solve any of the underlying root causes there. One of the things that I have heard a little bit about I'm interested in your take on is that that is kind of the only tool the city has, isn't it? Like, you know, the city can't op- open a supervised consumption site itself. We need the province to do that. Council kind of gives direction and says, this is a problem we hear about from people. Do something about it. Administration maybe predictably turns to a bylaw and fines as their only tool. So when you talk about maybe some imagination, I love that. What 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 comes to mind for you? Like, what else might we be doing to try to tackle some of these challenges? I have more faith in the city. You know, there's something Cheryl worked on a while back, which is the Indigenous Collaboration and Wellbeing Framework. You know, I think the Indigenous Collaboration and Wellbeing Framework actually gives us tools with which to look at problems, ways to think about engagement with populations that are affected by legislation, uh, and to creatively problem solve. You know, we had a, a really interesting example in the city with Recover that was a, a tool for doing that. The collaboration and well-being framework is still something the city should consult with. You know, when we think about GBA+, plus, it's a gender-based analysis. It's a tool the city uses oftentimes when things are easy, but I think it also needs to use these tools when things are complex and hard. The organization that I work for has worked with the city on initiatives that are Pretty well known, I think, in the city. You hear about them lots on the radio. Uh, transit safety is something that is top of mind for folks. And uh, it is an area that we started a partnership on during COVID as we were starting to re-enter the workplace. And um, it was this it was this notion of not just relying on enforcement as a means of tackling this issue that was in these transits transit spaces um, that looked at uh, people who were, you know, were concerned about safety issues, were concerned about people who were vulnerable for a variety of reasons and not using enforcement as its only tool to sort of deal with some of those issues. And so COT is the initiative that I'm talking about, the uh, community outreach transit teams that were partnered with a peace officer. And so the wonderful thing about that partnership is that uh, we are also building capacity in people who work in enforcement to sort of have a different conversation or develop different tools to work with people that you're meeting in these spaces every day. Um, so that's an example of like 
enforcement may have been the only tool, but it, it starts to develop other muscles to work with some real complex issues that we're seeing in the city today. I think as we come out of COVID, this is what we're seeing surface is these really complex uh, needs and issues uh, that we're dealing with today. Really interesting, Sherilyn. We've talked a bit about COT on the show before, and, and what you're saying is, you know, maybe enforcement was the only tool, but through partnerships like this, we're able to make a different first step be the norm rather than enforcement. And we heard administration already, when, you know, reflecting on administration's presentation and, and before they were talking to uh, or hearing from speakers mentioned that enforcement wouldn't be the primary tool here either. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's kind of all the bylaw provides for is, you know, greater yeah. enforcement. So do you, do you feel like based on your experience and the work that your organization's been doing that we actually can get to a place where, you know, we're not going around. I mean, we know bylaws in the city are not proactively enforced anywhere. They're complaint based, right? But where, you know, where enforcement isn't the the first step. I, I feel for um, city administration because when you boil it all down, we're citizens of this city. And so we're seeing these really sort of complex issues and needs that are happening in uh, in public spaces. And so Um, But there are levels and different levels of government that we are also citizens of. And so, uh, but it unfortunately sort of boils down to city administration to sort of tackle the issue. And I think um, talking to your city councillor is an option. Also talking to your MLA is an option. Also talking to your MP is an option. And other options are to talk to people who aren't your MLAs or aren't your MPs because, um, you have people who have um, files um, that are targeted at looking at some of these areas that we're, we're looking at. And maybe they, they're not your MLA or your MP, but you can still get in the ear of people who um, can have some influence on um, other strategies we could be using to tackle some of these issues. They're not just issues of things that are happening in public spaces. They're issues of health. They're issues of mental health. They're issues of houselessness, as we all know. I think what I'm getting at is I can appreciate that Bantero's perspective is not start with enforcement. And I'm, I guess, questioning whether that's actually administration's view. If, if their, you know, desired shift here is into, you know, more creative responses, more actually helpful responses, or if they're stuck in, this is the only tool we have. I don't want to speak for administration. <laughs> Understood. Yeah, I'll be. Uh, but uh, you know, I think behind the scenes, there's lots of work that's happening. Okay. I don't know if it's work that is necessarily communicated to the public um, in a way that they can understand, or if it's just quietly happening, and we need to better communicate things that are happening behind the scenes. The other thing that I think is a real issue is that these strategies need time to take root. Mm. and show some outcomes. And so we hear uh, a news report that COD is out there and doing this work. And two months later, nothing's fixed. Well, it takes time, you know, to develop these relationships with folks that we're meeting in these spaces, um, to develop trust with people that we're meeting in these spaces. And so these outcomes need to have time to to produce themselves. And uh, we just need to be able to keep on doing the work and, and probably better communicate what it is we are doing in community instead of, you know, maybe looking at bylaws as a means to sort of show people we're doing something. Omar, you had mentioned that this is an omnibus legislation, and it very much is. Uh, It covers anything from visible drug use to amplification systems to biking on the grass to flotation devices in the river. And I think when I read administration's report, 
I can kind of get behind a lot of the policy implications behind it. We don't want people visibly using drugs on our streets. We don't want harassment of people on our transit systems. All the motivations seem right in this bylaw. But what we're hearing from a lot of speakers is that they missed the mark a little bit. What do you think we might have done differently? If you were speaking at city council today, what would you recommend council move forward with? Do we approve parts of this bylaw? Do we salvage it for parts? Do we throw it out and do something new? What's the way that we can get around the very good policy outcomes we want here without sort of the negative outcomes we've talked about with this bylaw? So I think we've identified things that are problematic around safety. What we haven't done is actually address the actual solutions and the actual solutions are complex. You know, maybe what we've done is two things. One is we uh, are proposing a solution we know won't work, right? So you can't find someone out of homelessness, but we might be like, we need to do something now, right? And that frame of we have to do something now is a broken frame because as, as Cheryl mentioned, these are complex problems. And so we have to give them the time they need. So what could be done if we think about uh, houselessness, not as a seasonal issue, not as like this issue we have to talk about in the winter, but houselessness is a problem all year. And it's something we have to have a long-term plan on. You know, we're seeing end poverty Edmonton wind down. What is going to take its place? I think that's a really, really critical question. And if we start to say this is a problem that will take years, what does success look like in year one or in quarter one? That gives us a much better framework. And then the last point is, Let's use stuff we already have that we know works. So using the Indigenous Collaboration Framework, using GBA Plus analysis, building on the work COT has done and saying, how do we build and grow what we know works? To the business owners downtown who, if you're listening to council's meeting today, there were a lot of people that spoke up in opposition. And then there were a few people that spoke up in support and all of them had, you know, some downtown acronyms in common, but they were the quote-unquote business owners downtown. And they have a pretty legitimate claim insofar as they've lost business, right? There is a certain amount of disorder and messiness caused by the houselessness crisis, caused by the opioid crisis, and it's losing them business. And they don't want to lose business. So for those people, I find it's very hard to convince them that, no, you should continue to tolerate this because this is a crisis across our province. That may be true, but it's very hard to stomach for someone who's part of the Downtown Business Association. How do we frame the solutions in a way that are palatable to these downtown business owners and in a way that actually, you know, assages their concerns? Because we do want our downtown businesses to succeed. We do want our downtown to be, be vibrant. I live downtown. My office is just north of downtown. You know, I, f- I feel those same concerns. You know, it doesn't assuage my safety to have an ineffective solution. Someone saying, I'm gonna do something for sure that won't work, doesn't help me. I think what does help is is saying, hey, here's our long-term fix. Here's something that's gonna improve this quarter. Uh, here are the investments we're making. Uh, here are supports that you can now connect people with. I'll speak as um, an indigenous person, which is what I am. I will speak as a uh, consumer, which is what I am. And I'll speak as a citizen, which is what I am. And one of the things that I've noticed as a citizen is that it's become extremely difficult to receive even basic services from some of the businesses. And I will even, I'll say downtown and I will say all around downtown. And you go to any business in, in Edmonton and it becomes very difficult as a customer um, to use their facilities, for example. 
you need a key, you need a code, you need to buy something, you need to, you know, prove somehow that you're worthy to be able to use their facilities. It turns me away as a customer. I don't want to go for coffee in that place when it becomes a real exercise of proving somehow my worth to be able to use facilities that should be open to the public if you're going to be open for business. As an Indigenous woman, I'll I'll tell you a real quick story of last week meeting someone in the community at a coffee shop to have a dialogue about some of the things we're talking about here today. And I got there early and they invited me for coffee and I know they wanted to buy me a coffee. But being very aware of who I am as an Indigenous person and taking up space in a business, I went and bought my coffee. And so when this person came, he's like, well, I was going to buy you a coffee. And I'm like, yeah, but I can't take up space in a place like this and not buy anything. You know, this business will not allow me to do that because of who I am. Not easy to hear, but it is absolutely the, the truth. And I am not houseless, but it's still something that, that happens in, in and around um, these businesses that we're talking about here today. And so these are things that I'm very aware of as an Indigenous person, as a citizen, and as a customer. And because I can talk with my dollars, I choose to place my, you know, spend my money in places where I know that they're operating with some of those values that are important for me. Continuing on that line of thinking, Cheryl, uh, you know, one of the things that this bylaw would propose to do is substantially increase fines for loitering mm-hmm. uh, or using up public spaces. I mean, do you feel that, you know, passing this bylaw that increases the fine for loitering would only cause more of that problem that you're talking about, where you don't feel welcome in these spaces, where business owners feel more emboldened to sort of like treat you as less than when you're a customer like anyone else? I think they're going to treat me how they're going to treat me regardless of the bylaw. But I do know that bylaw enforcement, as we mentioned earlier, is really very much complaint based. It's also very much based on that bylaw officer that's going to be deciding whether or not they're going to issue a ticket. The place and capacity and awareness they have of the people that they're serving will ultimately come into play as well. That bylaw officer ultimately has the choice to perhaps refer to other resources, develop relationship with people that you're seeing in these spaces on on a habitual basis. But at the end of the day, they'll decide whether or not they're going to issue that ticket. I think they'll decide based on however many tools they have in their belt to be able to deal with some of these issues that are happening. If all you have is enforcement, that's what you're going to do. If you have certain beliefs about certain people in the city, that's what you're going to do. Um, So I think the more we develop capacity in people who are addressing some of these issues that we're seeing, seeing some of these people on a day-to-day basis, what will help is, is an awareness of how to speak to people, how to send people to supports that you're aware of, those kinds of things. That That's where I think we're going to make some, some gains here. Um, and it's certainly what I hear from some of the peace officers that we work with in COT is it, it feels better to go to work because now I have so many more options other than just enforcement. If the council approves this uh, bylaw today, which I don't think any of us think they're likely to do. Good call, Mac. uh, Our understanding is that it would take effect on May 13th, and the date was picked a couple of months out. My understanding is so that there would be some time for training for peace officers and those who would enforce the bylaw. But it doesn't sound like, to me, as as a as a layperson here, like that's an exceptional amount of time to do the kind of training that you're talking about, Cheryl, which sounds like it would be more impactful than increasing fines is just creating this greater education and awareness and understanding of 
what are the tools mm-hmm. in your toolkit as a as a peace officer? Do you know of any initiatives or, or work underway aside from what you folks are doing with COT to try and you know boost that overall level of understanding with the folks who are you know tasked with the really challenging job of of uh, of being the on the ground frontline folks in these public spaces? Well, I think there's, um, you know, Reach Edmonton is doing this kind of work. I think 211 also tries to educate people on resources and things like that. So I think there is some some work that's happening. And like I said, I think it's it's an awareness. It's about communication. It's about how do you get the word out on the street. And also, I think uh, another thing that would be really beneficial, I think, would be in the training, not just on the nuts and bolts of the bylaw, but what are some other options and possibly doing some um, trauma informed training on historical trauma training um, so that people have an awareness. One of the things we heard from some of the peace officers that we worked with and caught um, was that um, they didn't know, you know, they heard of these buzzwords in the indigenous community, residential school, TRC. They heard those words. They hear them on the news. They hear them here and there, but they didn't have a real understanding of the depth of, of what those words convey and what those times in our history convey. And, and then once they did, they looked at the work with really different eyes. Um, mm. So training like that would help, not just on like 3.1.2 of the bylaw says this and you can do this, this and this. Right. I think there's there's higher level training that can happen that would you know help develop those different muscles in, in our enforcement. So like Max said, I don't think the bylaw is going to pass today. What an incredible call, Troy. Nailed it. I've heard from counselors that there's been an outpouring of email. I've been hearing that, um, you know, some of the feedback that counselors have been receiving in regards to encampment clearing and this public spaces bylaw has dwarfed the amount of emails they've received on things like the mask debate, which got substantially more press coverage and was more of a culture war issue. So I think whether or not council necessarily agrees with this bylaw, I think it would behoove council to take some time and do a second look at it. So I suspect we're not going to get a pass today. What are the next steps? Uh, Where do we go from here? How do we move forward in the city of Edmonton? Because I think we all have the same understood goals. And while it's nice to think about, you know, root causes and solutions, we do have a provincial government that abdicates some level of responsibility what are our concrete steps forward that we can do as the city? One thing I also just want to highlight that we haven't talked about is uh, one of the things this bylaw does is it also it also attacks protest, and it's interesting in how it attacks protest, and we can't we can't disconnect that from the current environment when there is a racial dimension to current protest, or even if we look at the trucker convoy, right? Why was the trucker convoy allowed to go, but the counter protest against it not, right? And so, right, there's an unspoken part about this, which is how are we already selective about how we apply the bylaws, right? Because we apply it for some, but not for others, right? And I think that's the underlying issue you know, we, we haven't spent enough time talking about. How do we ensure that there is equity in the application of the law? Without equity in application of the law, we, we have tyranny, we have systemic inequity, and we also have something that just doesn't work. And so I think that's a big conversation we need to have. I think how we process that conversation, like a go forward, is we begin with engagement and engagement with the parties that are affected. That engagement is part of the solution, right? Asking people what they want, what would help them to you know, find shelter, that's, that's the beginning of the answer. 
So talking a little bit about that application of the law, I mean, there are sort of like three groups that can apply the law right now. You can have the soft application of the law, which is the librarian asking you to, you know, leave the space. There's a bit harder application of law in terms of like our peace officers. And then there's the EPS, which is probably the hardest application of the law in the city of Edmonton. When we're talking about, you know, equitable application of the law, the EPS specifically has proven they don't quite apply the law equitably in the city of Edmonton. Is the solution here, I mean, maybe it's both and, but is the solution here more training for the EPS in terms of equitable application, or is it detasking some of the police and finding a better applier of these types of laws, you know, in terms of public disorder or houselessness or or those types of things that this bylaw targets? We're, we're in very polarizing times. And so when you wor- use words like detask, EPS would hear words like defund. And so those are very like inflaming words that will be understood in that way. And so one of the words we use at Bentero is calling people in, um, not calling people out. And so always has been the way that we work with um, organizations that also serve our community, EPS, Children's Services, the City of Edmonton, all of those folks are serving the Indigenous community here in Edmonton. And so how do we call those folks into that work and help them understand this community, help them understand um, how possibly there could be better ways to be doing that work and doing that work together. And so um, we've always been really big supporters of doing this work in partnership. I think calling people in uh, creates safety also in having very difficult conversations. That is always going to be a tact that we will use when we're talking about very difficult things. Speaking of calling people in, I mean, your organizations probably should have been called in on this bylaw. To what extent did you get consulted on this bylaw? And how deep was that engagement? I won't say we've been called in specifically on this bylaw. What I, I mean, we, I certainly got reached out to by um, some city councillors to have a dialogue, like we're having one here today. And I think it was to sort of inform how they're responding to some of the comments, all those things, and maybe helping in their decision making. But I will say that we're involved in a number of fronts that not specifically on this bylaw, but I'll speak about COT. I'll speak about help. Um, and some of the work that we're doing in those spaces that I think will have impact on how this, whatever happens with this bylaw, will have impact on how uh, the work goes forward. And so HSOC is another one, you know, um, Healthy Streets Operations Center is another sort of uh, initiative that's, uh, you know, got propelled by the by the province, but involves the city and EPS. And so being involved in some of these tables, I'm hoping gives us voice in how this work gets carried out and goes forward. You know, some of the important things to set out when we work together is uh, how do we create really productive relationships? I think some of that is actually putting uh, our community partner organizations in the leadership position when it comes to partnership. I would prefer personally seeing you know, Ben Arrow lead a, a joint task force. Uh, I have trust in community organizations to inform those conversations that way of working helps administration get better work. And I'll say I've been in partnerships with the city and EPS and literally, you know, some really big decisions didn't go forward without all three of us being in agreement on on those, you know, initiatives going forward. And so I think when partnership is done 
you know, with that, um, with that equity lens, you know, also some really good and powerful work can happen there too. It seems to me that this could have been a something that administration brought forward alongside the proposed bylaw. This is how we're going to go about implementing this. These are the partners that we're working with, and here's what we're going to do. Might have made some of the contents of the bylaw seem a little less uh, off-putting than uh, than the way that it was proposed and the way that, you know, typically I think it's fair to say has been the approach, which is we maybe go for a partnership like you're talking about, but only after the fact, not proactively, sort of more reactively. And if we, if we got to a place where we were thinking about that partnership from the beginning and that collaboration from the beginning, that might have eased some of the concerns I think that we're hearing from speakers and other people about, about how this bylaw might be, you know, brought to bear and, and enforced and that sort of thing. I think it's true. I think, you know, or I've said this a couple of times on this call is like raising the profile and having good communications about the work that is happening. And so I think there is a bit of reactivity, you know, to citizens concerns. I'm not I'm not begrudging them or belittling their concerns in any way. But if you if you react to the citizens concerns, it's almost like you freeze and don't think about showcasing all the work that is happening. Right. Because I'm busy, like we're doing lots of stuff. We're partnering with lots of people. I can say that. Yeah. Um, but it 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 does need time to take take root and 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 develop some steam, some some forward momentum, all that kind of stuff. It has been an absolute joy talking to you two, uh, both of you noticeably not two straight white dudes, which on a podcast <laughs> talking about an issue like this, our listeners very much appreciate. You're giving us some insight that uh, we cannot uh, provide on our own. I, we always like to give our guests the floor. You know, is there anything we missed? Is there anything you want our listeners to hear? Anything you'd like to close on? I don't know if I come across as like uh, a little bit Pollyanna, um, but I just think this this work we're doing is extremely hard. Um, we're overcoming some uh, some really big historical issues that uh, are really difficult to, to, to work with and talk about and problem solve our way through. And, uh, you know, me coming at it from a place of hope, from a place of uh, willingness, from a place of openness, uh, I just think is the way forward and always doing that work in partnership. And so I could not have lasted in this sector as long as I have without having that that sort of hopeful attitudes as as we work our way through these very complex issues. I, I couldn't agree with Cheryl more, right? We have we have tools at our disposal. We have tools that we know have worked. We have partners who want to be part of the solution, engage with the city and collaboratively work together. And together we can solve these problems. You know, not in a month, not in a season, but over time. This problem didn't emerge in a few months. It took years. It was exacerbated by one of the most monumental changes we've seen in our life, which was COVID. To readdress these issues, we need to be thinking about community. Uh, When we think about issues of addictions, when we think about people wanting to peacefully protest and use their voice, really what we're thinking about is how do we build a better city? The way we build a better city is through community. And community's best tools aren't bylaws, they are community. Well, I think that's a perfect note to close on. Thank you both so much uh, for joining us. Uh, It's uh, always a pleasure to have guests of your caliber on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Of course, while this public spaces bylaw is being debated, 
And there's this undercurrent of selective enforcement, this undercurrent of, you know, at least casual or systemic racism going under the scenes. There's some overt um, ugliness happening, and that's in the form of ICE District is not only not supporting Boyle Street in this case, ICE District is suing Boyle Street, trying to renege on a conditional $5 million donation that they promised for their new facility, the King Thunderbird Center. So when we talked about this on the show in the past, I think, you know, at the time, the conversation is that folks were quick to point the finger at ICE District, right? They're the big bad corporation. They have to be the reason behind why Boyle Street had to vacate their existing facility before the new facility is ready to go and move to all these temporary spaces, right? And at the time, I sort of defended it a little bit. And I said, well, there's no evidence that they've done anything wrong here. Like, they bought the building for $5 million, They made a $10 million donation to the fundraising effort for the new facility. They were releasing it out at a, at a dollar a year. Like, what is it that's gone on here? And if it is something really bad, why didn't Boyle Street say what it is? And so we've since learned that in addition to that public money that had been promised and committed, there was this private conditional $5 million donation. And so the Cates Group basically said, look, you need to go and raise $8.5 million to fund this new facility. If you run into challenges, you're not able to raise enough, we're going to commit another $5 million to you in order to help you get that fundraising effort complete in order to, to move forward with the facility. They have now, very strangely, decided to sue the agency, arguing that Boyle Street didn't try hard enough to fundraise, and so that therefore they should not have to pay the $5 million that they had committed behind closed doors. And Boyle Street's response to this, of course, is that, well, the Cates Group already has what it wants. It got the building. We're off the site. They can do whatever they want to do in terms of development. So now they just are trying to get out of you know, a commitment that they had made. These are all allegations that are yet to be proven in court, but these are the, the statements that we'd heard back and forth from, from uh, both of the organizations. And so it does look really bad for the Cates Group, and I'm just left wondering why on earth they would want this to get into the public record by taking them to court. Really bizarre. When we were talking about, you know, Boyle Street's immediate vacation back in September, uh, you know, we speculated, why would it be financial hardship to renew a $1 lease? Yeah. And the reason is, in order to get a lease extension, they had to forego any claim to that $5 million backstop. So sure, renewing the lease would cost them $1 a month plus $5 million, uh, which makes it much easier to understand why they boogied out of there really quickly, citing financial hardship. This is bizarre that the Cates Group would be doing this. Also bizarre because the NHL is one of the most profitable franchises in North America. Uh, Cates is not want for cash. If the story is different, it's Boyle Street was struggling to fundraise. We've committed an additional $5 million. This is nothing but a good news story for the Oilers. I can't imagine that it is worth this $5 million that I'm not a lawyer, but maybe they'll end up having to pay anyway, plus legal costs. I can't see the upside of doing this. And at the end of the day, it just feels spiteful. Just two things that come to mind, right? When I was reflecting on this whole situation, I'm not a huge fan of the argument that, you know, Cates is worth $4 billion, $5 million bucks is pocket change to him. It's like rich people are rich for a reason, right? They, yes. they pay attention to where their money goes and all of that. And so I'm not defending, you know, uh, the situation, but I can understand why 
somebody would try who has money would try to get out of spending more money. That's how they got rich in the first place by being shrewd business people or taking advantage of people, I guess is a, a more realistic way to put it. So there's that. I understand he could just pay the five million bucks and it wouldn't make a difference to him and it would make a huge difference to that organization and to the people that it serves. But that's not who he is. So that's fine. The second thing is, you know, on your question about what do they possibly gain from this, maybe another way to look at it is what do they lose? Do people who spend hundreds of dollars on tickets and hundreds of thousands of dollars on merchandise for the Oilers and, you know, folks who have already decided that they're going to support the team no matter what, like they're not going to, they're not at risk of losing those folks. What is the actual harm here to his business interests by trying to get out of spending this $5 million? There's a sort of short term situation where folks like us and, and others are appalled and, you know, we complain about it and we say, how could you do that? That's horrible. But then the next crisis comes along, it kind of blows over, people forget about it and we move on. There is one potential business harm and that comes in the form of Councillor Aaron Paquette talking about, you know, given the Cates group uh, pulling out of this funding agreement with Boyle Street, perhaps we need to consider City of Edmonton subsidies to the OEG. Um, he Things that will be coming up for debate soon, the parking lot just north of Rogers Place. This was, you know, a temporary parking lot. We're hearing that Kate's group is going to want to renew this for another five years to get some more parking fees at the expense of the community. I can't see any appetite on council to approve something like that. After now, council will maybe it'll fall to them to backstop five million in funding for Boyle Street. I think if there is any negative implication to the Kate's group's finances, it will be in the form of public subsidies might dry up as a result of this. Council might tire of supporting a billionaire. Um, one can only hope. I mean, $2 million a year for marketing and some of the other things that were part of the arena deal, like, sure, it's interesting that Councillor Paquette is trying to reopen that conversation. But even his statement was careful to not alienate the Oilers too much. I think it <laughs> ended with, go Oilers, go. It's a, it's a dangerous thing politically in this city to be really negative about the hockey team. So, I mean, we'll see how far that conversation actually gets because, you know, I don't think anybody on council wants to be seen to be anti-Edmonton Oilers. It's not, uh, it's not very helpful when you, you know, for example, in a couple of years want to run for re-election. Especially, uh, you know, Oilers on a streak. If we're anti-Oilers during the playoff run where we might hit the cup, you don't want to be that counselor. No, certainly not. The Oilers did whiff their 16-game winning streak, but we're... 251 episodes strong and the rapid fire streak continues. Here's another one. After library workers voted 94% to strike last week, a vote taken by CSU 52 resulted in a 91% approval of a strike by City of Edmonton workers. City manager Andre Corbald was unfazed by the vote, however, saying, quote, that's only 910,000 voices. They're still 90,000 short of the number required to get on my radar. With a handful of Alberta NDP MLAs declaring their candidacy in the upcoming leadership race, rumors have been swirling as to whether former Calgary mayor and head Nenshi will enter. Since leaving office, the popularity of Calgary City Council has fallen off a cliff, leading many in the city to remember Nenshi's tenure fondly. Should he win, not only will Nenshi have broken ground for being the first Muslim mayor of a large North American city, but he will have achieved the arguably much more impressive feat, first NDP leader popular in Calgary. 
Explore Edmonton has received a $6 million cash infusion from city council's reserve funds. The organization, which is critical for encouraging tourism to the city, is hopeful that the new money can make their operations much more successful and is hoping to draw double-digit increases in those visiting Edmonton. With the ambitious goal announcement, however, Edmonton police has issued a stern warning to would-be tourists. Do not come in a tent. We will throw it out to prevent frostbite. And of course, to close out the episode, we've got one last ad slot. Mac, what fills this slot? In some recent episodes, we've talked about the Tapper Edmonton calendar, and it's growing leaps and bounds, thousands of events in there for people to find. We are also starting to explore, you know, how to make some money from this thing. We're an operation that needs to continue to pay people salaries. And the calendar is one of the things that, you know, we are building that could help you, uh, dear listener, perhaps, or your organization, uh, with reaching engaged Edmontonians. So if you're interested in exploring what that could look like, as Troy likes to say, I'm the business daddy on this podcast, I would (laughs) love to hear from you. And also, as you know, we read ads on this podcast. And if you have something that you'd like to share with our listeners, advertising on Speaking Municipally or in any of uh, Taproot's other publications uh, is an option. And uh, you can reach out to us at hello at taprootedmonton.ca and we'd love to explore how we can help you. There is also one of the ad tiers available simply enter your business name and Troy will riff on whatever he thinks your business is and sell it to listeners. It's a dangerous ad tier to buy, but it is one available to you. Very creative. Of course, that's all we have time for this week. As I'm saying this on Wednesday, City Council has not yet decided on the public spaces bylaw, but if they decide before I edit this podcast, you may have heard earlier in the episode the actual results, and this too will become outdated. It's going to be a wild ride. Uh, so who knows if I'm even saying this in the final edit. Only you can find out by listening. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Omar. I'm Cheryl. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.